welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 8, Role-Playing Games from 1995 to 2004. At the end of last week's episode, we discussed the state of the gaming industry as the mid-90s arrived. Thanks to advances in computer technology, 3D graphics gave video and computer games a level of realism they hadn't previously had. For reference, the first PlayStation console was released in 1994, Microsoft developed DirectX in 1995, and Sega and Nintendo had created and released their top, as of the moment, consoles over the past several years. In addition to that, the prices for home computers and video game consoles became more affordable for the casual user, with the added advantage of the games for those systems also becoming more affordable. And with the new graphics available, this provided what many considered a more immersive experience. Tabletop role-playing games had another competitor taking away some of their business as well. In 1993, Peter Atkinson and Richard Garfield released a competitive card-collecting game with a fantasy setting, something that reminded a lot of players of D&D, among other games. You probably figured out which game I'm describing, but for those who didn't, it was Magic the Gathering. The game was an overwhelming success and launched Wizards of the Coast, the company that published the game, into the upper echelon of game companies. Many publications noted by 1995 that with gamers' time and money being split three ways, the tabletop role-playing industry was suffering. It didn't help matters that the financial troubles TSR had been experiencing for years came to a head in the mid-90s, with the company that produced the industry leader hemorrhaging money, something had to give. For TSR, what gave was the company itself as it was sold to Wizards of the Coast in 1997, and then Wizards was acquired by Hasbro for $325 million in 1998. So, with its future in question, how did the tabletop role-playing industry adapt? First, the industry became a bit introspective. In 1994, Interactive, which later renamed to Interactive Fiction, published a magazine devoted to the study of role-playing games, The magazine reflected the nature of many gamers at the time. There was a lot of critical and theoretical reflection on the theory of role-playing games. From that, several theories emerged. The first major theory was developed, and it was developed through discussion at rec.games.frp.advocacy from 1997 to 1998, was the threefold model. Proposed by Mary Cooner and FAQ'd by John Kim, it hypothesizes that any GM decision will be made for the purpose of the game, or drama, or simulation. Thus, player preferences, GMing styles, and even role-playing game rule sets can be characterized as game-oriented, drama-oriented, or simulation-oriented, or more typically, somewhere between the three extremes. This theory was eventually utilized to direct game design, and game designers utilized it to explain why players play certain games. Another theory that emerged was the Big Model, or Forge theory. Developed at the Forge from 1999 to 2005, largely by Ron Edwards, 
It hypothesizes that role-playing games are modeled by the big model with four levels, the social contract, exploration, techniques, and ephemera, with creative agendas governing the link from social contract to technique. In this theory, there are three kinds of creative agenda, gamist, narrativist, and simulationist agendas. Several other theories emerged over the years, but for the purpose of this podcast, these two will suffice. What resulted from these theories was a new way for creators and publishers to look at the role-playing game market, and it changed the ways creators created their games. In basic speak, creators could design their games not only for a specific type of setting, but also a specific type of gamer. Moving forward, these theories would help drive the industry, and in the opinions of many, help to save the industry. 1996 saw a number of new games enter the landscape. That year, West End Games published the D6 system. Much like GURPS or the Hero system, which we've discussed previously, the D6 system was designed to work with any possible type of game. It was named the D6 system because the six-sided die was the only die needed for the game to resolve all roles, which was pretty common for West End Games at the time. Credit for design of the system goes to the various creators of West End's previous games, such as Ghostbusters and Star Wars. West End Games was able to publish several supplements for the system, but the D6 system itself got only the one printing, primarily because of the eventual demise of the company itself. However, the concept of the system survived in Widzengera Weizenbranzi, I know I messed that up, but I apologize. It's a Polish game based on the Witcher books, which utilizes a D6 system very similar to this D6 system. 1996 also brought a game that is one of my personal favorites, Deadlands. Designed by Shane Lacey Hensley and published by Pinnacle Entertainment Group, Deadlands is a genre-mixing alternate history game. The genres it mixes are the western and horror genres, with a bit of steampunk thrown in. The game is set in the United States in 1876 in the first edition. The most recent edition, by the way, starts the game in 1879. The Weird West, as it's known, has a very different history than the U.S. actually has. In this game, the Civil War ended in a draw. The Mormons took Utah and a bit of territory around it and made them their own sovereign state. Native Americans kept a large chunk of their ancestral lands, and half of California fell off into the ocean due to massive earthquakes. All of this is due, in large part, to something called the Reckoning. This Reckoning caused the dead to rise and begin to move across the continent. The Reckoners, those who began the Reckoning, have a goal of turning the Earth into a literal hell on Earth, and it's the goal of the players to prevent this. Now, character creation for Deadlands is unique. Instead of spending character points or rolling dice to determine abilities, players instead draw cards from a standard 54-card poker deck, leaving the jokers in, of course. Dice for rolling later are determined by the card for each ability. Deadlands also adds in fate chips, portrayed by actual poker chips, these give the players an opportunity to change roles, make spells, which in this game are known as hexes, more powerful, and do other things they might not normally be able to do. Now, there is a whole lot more to Deadlands, but I'm going to dive deeper into this game on another show. Like I said, it really is a personal favorite, and I'll tell you why then. 
So for right now, we're just going to stick with the basics. Deadlands is still printed today and has been modified for the D20 system, GURPS, and Savage Worlds. While the initial release of Deadlands was praised for the uniqueness of its rules, it took a hit for its purported lack of setting. This was rectified with the many supplements released over the years, to the point that, in my opinion, there are very few areas of North America that aren't detailed for use in the game. Deadlands has won nine Origins Awards over the years, with the most recent being for Best Role-Playing Supplement of 2007. 1997 saw the release of Legend of the Five Rings. Originally designed by John Wick and published by Alderac Entertainment Group, L5R uses the Legend of the Five Rings setting, primarily the nation of Rokugan, which is based on feudal Japan, with influences from other East Asian cultures. L5R is a D10 system, which means it uses 10-sided dice exclusively. In L5R, as in some other D10 systems used today, if a player rolls a 10, the die is considered to have exploded, which allows the player to re-roll that die and add the result to the 10. If another 10 is rolled, the process is repeated. L5R uses a roll and keep system, which was designed by John Wick and Dave Williams. Roll and keep means that when dice are rolled, the GM gives two numbers, the number of dice to roll and the number of dice to keep. The totals of the kept dice are added together, giving the player the total sum for the roll. So, what this means in practice is that if the GM tells you to roll five, keep three, you would roll five dice. For the sake of our description, let's say you roll a nine, an eight, seven, three, and two. You'd keep the 9, 8, and 7 for a total of 24. If a 10 had been rolled, you would have re-rolled that and added it as per the exploding dice rules. L5R uses eight traits paired up and associated with the four elemental rings of earth, water, fire, and air. Now, this system makes character advancement much more difficult than in other games because in order for a character to advance, the level of their rings must increase. And in order to do that, both of the ring's associated traits must increase. Also, L5R is notoriously lethal. There are tons of stories of characters who stormed into combat early on in a game only to die because of the lethality of the system. L5R has survived five editions, as well as a version from Wizards of the Coast modeled on the old TSR Oriental Adventures. It is still published today by Fantasy Flight Games. Reviews of this game are basically positive, especially among those who appreciate the setting and Bushido style. In 1998, TSR, in one of the final games published under its banner, released the Marvel Superheroes Adventure Game. Off the top, this game should not be confused with any other Marvel superhero game released, and it is almost completely different from all of them. Its big attraction was a 96-card Fate deck, which was used instead of dice to determine the outcome of actions and to determine results. However, the cards tended to be confusing. Each card contained a picture of a character, a calling, an aura, positive, neutral, or negative, oh, and a suit. Suits, represented by characters, were for strength, Hulk, agility, Spider-Man, intellect, Mr. Fantastic, Willpower, Doctor Strange, or Doom, Doctor Doom. 
The game was designed to be a fast and simple play. Characters had four abilities, rated 1 through 30, and Edge ranked between 0 and 5. The character's Edge determined the player's hand size, which was 2 plus their Edge. The game got this single release before the rights were lost again, and the reviews were overwhelmingly meh, and the sales were flat. 1999 saw a lot of big games being released. However, there were a few that really stood out. Seventh Sea, described as a swashbuckling and sorcery game, was released by Alderac Entertainment Group. Designed by John Wick, Seventh Sea draws its influence from 17th century European literature. The setting of Seventh Sea is expansive. Each country in the world can be compared to a European kingdom. Just remember, it's really exaggerated. Sorcery is a large part of the world, with multiple types available to the characters. There's also a dominant religion, a belief in Theus and his prophets, which is based on Gnostic Christianity and a parallel to the Spanish Inquisition. Although, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> anyway. There are also references to the Knights Templar, Masons, and the Invisible College of Scientists. The first edition of Seventh Sea was a D10 roll-and-keep system and was very well received. Later editions changed this system to D20, which has been a de facto standard for many games since it was introduced by Wizards of the Coast with D&D 3rd edition. Seventh Sea has received a ton of supplemental materials over the and has also had three publishers. Besides Alderac Entertainment Group, it was also published by John Wick's company, John Wick Presents, and by Chaosium, who hold the current rights. Officially, Seventh Sea only has two editions, but the various reprints have incorporated changes over the years. As I mentioned above, reviews for Seventh Sea have been overwhelmingly positive over the years, and the players who've played the game love it. Aberrant was also released in 1999. Created by White Wolf Studio and designed by a huge team, Aberrant was a new take on the superhero genre. Originally set in 2008, superpowered humans just appeared one day in 1998. The game focuses on how metahumans, primarily the player's characters, fit into a mundane world. Additionally, the game deals with how the mundane world deals with the sudden emergence of these Novas. That's the name for metahumans in game. Characters have powers, which come from their ability to manipulate energy at the quantum subatomic level. And, to balance this out, the game introduces Taint. Taint is a side effect of channeling the large amounts of energy a Nova has to for their powers. It leads to either physical or mental defects and play a large role in the overall gameplay. Aberrant uses a modified version of the Storyteller system, which we discussed in last week's episode. The D10 system discussed there is used, but it's not a roll and keep like we discussed earlier in this episode. Aberrant got a lot of material published for it, both from the original publishers as well as from fans who loved the system so much that they published their own materials. Aberrant has had three editions. The first two came from White Wolf, though the second was a D20 system released after they'd originally discontinued the game in 2002. The third edition is coming from Onyx Path Publishing, who have recently acquired the game and have it slated for a later in 2021 release. 
So I guess I should actually modify that to say they've had two editions with a third one on the way. Reviews of the game were good, with reviewers enjoying the gritty realism of the system. Hunter the Reckoning was released by White Wolf Games in 1999. Another entry in their World of Darkness series, Hunter was the first game to that point in which players actually played humans. Designed by Mark Reinhagen and multiple others, Hunter was the culmination of the work of the World of Darkness creative team to that point. After establishing vampires, werewolves, mummies, and other things that go bump in the night, Hunter was the game that finally put humans on the offensive rather than the defensive. Hunters are cursed with the knowledge of the supernatural, as well as the knowledge that they can't just tell anybody what they know. Instead, the hunter wages a clandestine war on the supernatural. Unlike the other entries in the World of Darkness series, hunters don't have a coherent society, though small groups, like the players, will unite against common enemies. Virtues and creeds are very important to the game, as they determine how a hunter will react to things during the game. Mercy, zeal, and vision are the primary creeds, and they allow for a personalization of the character to its individual player. White Wolf published 25 books for Hunter, and all of them dropped in November of 1999. The game is still available, though it only has the single edition. Reviewers loved this game, and fans have been clamoring for new editions for quite some time. However, this is highly unlikely as White Wolf tends to group their games into a specific year, such as the Year of Reckoning, which saw the end of Hunter, Changeling, Demon, Kindred of the East, and Mummy in 2004. The year 2000 saw an action that would change the nature of the role-playing game industry forever. That year, Wizards of the Coast introduced a policy that would allow other companies to publish D&D-compatible materials. It was called the Open Game License, and it allowed smaller publishers to create supplemental materials for the best-selling game in the world. For Wizards of the Coast, it was a win-win. Without having to publish a ton of supplemental materials, taking on the costs of doing that versus the Law of Diminishing Returns, Wizards could save money. Their other positive was that they were the only ones who could publish the core books, the Player's Guide, the DM's Guide, the Monster Manual. As I said, this was also a win for other publishers, as they could expand into the previously forbidden world of D&D and publish materials for the game. Simultaneously with the open game license, the third edition of D&D was released with a new system, the D20 system. This meant that D20s were the primary die, though the game still used all the other dice in the bag. The D20 system simplified the rules of D&D which had gotten exceptionally convoluted over the years of 2nd edition. The D20 system was originally applauded by both gamers and reviewers, but as the years went on and a ton of D20 system games were designed, along with new D20 editions of older games, the inevitable backlash occurred. So getting back into the timeline, 2001 saw the release of the Wheel of Time role-playing game. Based on the series of fantasy novels by Robert Jordan, the game had been originally created by Last Unicorn Games, but Wizards of the Coast would make final edits and release it, as they got the rights when they purchased Last Unicorn Games. Charles Ryan, Stephen Long, Christian Moore, and Owen K.C. Stevens get creative credit for the game, though Robert Jordan had creative input and wrote the introduction. 
Hey, fun fact. In his introduction, Robert Jordan revealed that he'd been the DM for D&D games for his stepson and his friends. The Wheel of Time utilized Wizard's D20 rule system and followed a very similar layout to the third edition of D&D. However, instead of DM, which Wizards will only use for D&D games, the Wheel of Time storyteller is called the GM. A big difference between Wheel of Time and D&D is that Wheel of Time doesn't have a lot of different races, as the novels only have two sentient races, humans and Ogier. However, this game included a lot of backgrounds that would serve a similar function. One has to wonder if this is where the idea for using backgrounds in 5th edition D&D came from. Obviously, the classes were different as well, staying true to the source material. Prestige classes were also available, which plays into the rule that had been introduced in 3rd edition D&D. The rest of the rules for the game were very similar to D&D, with modifications made to stay true to the source novels. The Wheel of Time got one supplemental expansion called Prophecies of the Dragon. It was a huge supplement at 191 pages. It provided a ton of additional material from the six novels in the series, and provided five major adventures, along with a number of mini-adventures for players to run through. Reviews of The Wheel of Time were generally okay. The main issue most reviewers took with it is that it was too similar to D&D. Now, as you may have guessed, The Wheel of Time is out of print. Also in 2001, a game based on a little Polish fantasy novel series was released, Witcher. Titled Widsman Gra Wałbrazny, hey, I got it right this time, it stayed true to the source material. Published by Wydenpał Mog, it was released only in Poland at the time, though about a decade later, another version would get a U.S. release. I mentioned it here more as a fun fact than anything else. I know we have a lot of listeners who are familiar with the Witcher series, and I wanted to note that this is not a new phenomenon. In 2002, Wizards of the Coast dropped a modern set game for their D20 system, simply titled D20 Modern. Designed by Bill Slavchek, Jeff Grubb, Rich Redman, and Charles Ryan, D20 Modern fully embraced the D20 system developed for the third edition of D&D. Now, obviously, they made some changes, since the idea was to set your adventure in a modern setting, so the classes changed to the strong hero, fast hero, tough hero smart hero, dedicated hero, and charismatic hero, each one of those based on one of the basic ability scores. There were also 14 advanced classes that characters could eventually become, but there were requirements to meet in order to become one. These were things like gunslinger, negotiator, soldier, and mage. A big addition to the game was the concept of the action point. These were used by characters to affect gameplay. For example, a character could use an action point to get a small boost to their skill checks, ability checks, level checks, or saving throws. However, the number of points were limited, making their use strategic. From 2002 to 2006, Wizards published a number of supplements to the D20 modern system, including rules for an apocalypse, cyberscape, future tech, the past, and the future. Initially, reviews were mixed, as many reviewers were curious about the necessity of a modern-themed game. As time progressed and the dislike of the proliferation of D20 games grew, the reviews of this system got a whole lot worse. Needless to say, it also is currently out of print. 
2002 also saw another entry in the superhero genre, Mutants and Masterminds. Designed by Stephen Kenson and published by Green Ronin Publishing, Mutants and Masterminds was the first superhero game designed under the D20 system. Characters in Mutants and Masterminds don't have classes and therefore don't technically have class levels. Instead, they have power levels and typically start at power level 10 instead of 1. This allows for a superhero with good powers and an established background. Power levels allow for points, which can be used to purchase saving throws, feats, skill ranks, attack bonuses, and many other things. In another change, Mutants and Masterminds doesn't use hit points. Instead, a toughness saving throw is used to determine how a character is damaged in combat. Multiple supplements for the game have been published, all providing new and different settings to be utilized. Reviews of the game have been mostly positive, and Green Ronin not only still publishes the core rulebook, but allows for publishing of material by other publishers through the M&M Superlink program. This has allowed a dozen other publishers to publish materials for the game over the years. In 2003, Pinnacle Entertainment Group released Savage Worlds. Designed as a generic role-playing game and created by Shane Lacey Hensley, Savage Worlds emphasizes speed of play and reduced preparation over realism or details. Characters are built with a point allocation system, but GMs are encouraged to design their NPCs to the needs of the game, with concerns about the system being secondary. Traits are ranked by the type of die they use, D4 through D12. The larger the die, the more powerful the character is in that trait. This is similar to the system Hensley utilized in Deadlands, which we discussed earlier in this show. The rest of character creation matches the best of the previous games designed by Hensley for Pinnacle. However, players and GMs are encouraged always to worry less about the system itself than the needs of the game. While Pinnacle initially published new games based on this system, eventually Pinnacle republished their past releases, such as Deadlands, to the system. Rifts was also eventually adapted to the Savage Worlds system as well. Savage Worlds has been positively reviewed and has sold exceptionally well. Also, it won the 2003 Origin Gamer's Choice Award for Best Role-Playing Game. During this period of time, a new trend emerged. Called by many names at the time, it's most commonly referred to as the OSR, Old School Renaissance or Old School Revival. The inspiration for this was the early days of gaming, and it led to companies releasing new versions of old games. One of the first releases during the OSR was Castles and Crusades, which was released by Troll Lord Games in 2004. Now, after everything I just said, I've got to note that Castles and Crusades was a wholly new game, created by Stephen Chenault, Davis Chenault, Matt Golden, Robert Doyle, Mark Sandy, Todd Gregg, and James M. Ward, it was based on a stripped-down variant of the D20 system. The name of the game itself was a throwback. In the time before D&D, Gary Gygax had created a group known as the Castle and Crusade Society. So to pay homage, the game used the name of D&D's creator's creation. Another throwback to Gygax in the original D&D was the release of the game. A boxed set of Castles and Crusades was sold at Gen Con in 2004. The reason for this was that Troll Lord Games wanted something to release for the game at Gen Con, 
but the full rules books wouldn't have been ready until later in the year. This box had three digest size books, dice, and a crayon. Hey, fun fact. The throwback for that is that in the 70s and really in about the mid-80s, dice in many game boxes had to actually have their numbers colored in with crayons. So the inclusion of dice and a crayon here was the throwback of throwbacks. Oh, and the first 300 copies of the boxes were signed and numbered by the designers. In December of 2004, the player's handbook for Castles and Crusades was finally released. Most of the D20 system was utilized in this game, though the system of skills and feet was tossed, replaced with the Siege Engine. The Siege Engine is an attribute check system. A character's attributes are divided into primary and secondary attributes. Checks against primary attributes have a base challenge base of 12, while secondary have a challenge base of 18. Now, the Castle Keeper, this game's name for the GM, can add to those numbers as the challenges require, and that adds more flavor to the gameplay. Another note, while the core game doesn't have a specific setting, four settings were published for the game over the years. Castles and Crusades has been reviewed positively and is still available in print. And as 2004 becomes 2005, we come to the end of this week's tour. Next week, we step out of the timeline for something a little different, as I'll do my best to explain to you what to do if you want to start role-playing. I was reminded by my wife this week that I haven't done a Jolly Blackburn shout-out in a couple weeks, so to Jolly, thank you, sir, for being the brilliant you that you are. Of course, the shout-out of shout-outs goes to you, because you're helping us grow this show into something really, really cool. As a reminder, you can reach out to us on Facebook at the Role Playing History Podcast page, hit us up on Twitter at Role Playing History Podcast, or with the hashtag Role Playing History Podcast. We're also on YouTube. Role Playing History Podcast is the channel, so drop in, check it out, hit the subscribe button, and click on the bell to get alerts when we drop new stuff. In fact, I dropped a new thing earlier this week talking about the TSR controversy, so there is something different than just the podcasts there. Finally, you can reach me at the email address, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Again, next week, we explore how to start gaming if you haven't gamed before. There's a lot of what I hope will be helpful information there, so if you're interested in starting, or if you're a gamer without a group, join us. But that's next week. Thanks for joining us this week. Until next Friday at 11 a.m., I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.